Hi, my name is Brian and I'm the pastor of Vision at Holy City Church. I'm glad that you found our online sermon resources and I pray that the Lord would use them to strengthen your faith. I would exhort you not to use our online sermon resources as a substitute for regular involvement in your own local church. That being said, I pray that our teaching resources would be helpful to you and conform you even more into the image of Christ. First John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, and for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We are in our third week of Advent, Advent 2022. And if you're not familiar with Advent, Advent is traditionally observed over the five weeks leading up to and including Christmas. It's a season that's about more than just a baby in a manger or three wise men traveling. It's a time to consider how the miracle of Christ's coming into the world changed history, how it brought peace and the hope of salvation. If you're new or visiting with us, our theme for this year's Advent season is for this reason. We're highlighting the reasons that Jesus came and took on flesh. Why did God the Son, through whom heaven and earth were created, humble himself to be born as a helpless baby? Why does Scripture, or what does Scripture tell us were the reasons for Christ's coming? Advent is particularly sweet for me this year because we, we just finished up our curriculum in the, in the older kids class in Holy City Kids. And that was 40 weeks of, of looking at this, uh, looking through the Old Testament and finding clues as to why Jesus came, what he came to do, and why he had to die. And that, that is the heart of what Advent is about. It's more than gold and frankincense and myrrh. It's more than beautiful poinsettias. It's about taking time to celebrate the glorious reality of God's plan for redemption through the incarnate Christ. 
So we're, we're going to touch on the nativity like very briefly this morning, but I, I want to focus more on what the Apostle John said about why Jesus came. John was the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one whom Jesus entrusted the care of his mother to while he was dying on the cross. So he's a pretty good source. And John provides several reasons in his writings, and particularly in this first letter, for Christ's appearing. And we have two of them in this section that I hope will be very helpful to us this morning and, and encouraging to our hearts. John begins our passage by showing us how incredible our relationship with God is now as Christians. And then he ties that to Christ's mission. It turns out that the very reason that Christ came was to tear down the walls that kept us from that relationship with God. In verse 5, he tells us that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. That's a pretty good reason for him to come. And in verse 8, we'll see that Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus has not only secured salvation for his people, but he has enabled us to pursue holiness and maintain a right relationship with God in this life as we look forward to the life to come. John's exhortation to us essentially is become what you are because there's no reason to wait and there's nothing stopping us. Not our sins, not even the devil. So we have uh, three points this morning if you're taking notes. Our first point is to embrace your new identity as God's child now. Embrace your new identity as God's child now. The second point, abide in Christ who has taken away your sin. Abide in Christ who has taken away your sin. And the third point, become what you are. So point number one, embrace your new identity as God's child now. This verses one through three we're going to be focusing on. Verse one says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we, we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So I need to give us a little context uh, where we're at in the letter. At the end of chapter 2, John has just touched on the fact that Christians are people who confess that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. That's who Christians are. And he argues that if we abide in Christ, which abide means to remain or endure or to dwell in, if we abide in Christ, then we have the hope of eternal life. 
because God has promised it to us through Jesus. Jesus is returning. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Thank you. <clears throat> so John's desire is that when Christ returns, we can stand before him with confidence rather than shrinking back in shame. To do this, we should practice righteousness because Jesus is righteous. And living like him is a marker that we are born of God, that we're his. This idea of being born of God launches John into this exaltation of God's love. See what kind of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. If you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you can now rightly be called a child of God. That's amazing. That's a gift. You were not his child before. You enjoyed no benefits of being his children. In fact, you had only death and destruction to look forward to when Christ returns because of your sins, because of your rebellion against this holy God. You had no help. But now, you are his child. When I first started writing this manuscript, I had like a page and a half talking about how beautiful adoption is. Adoption is just an incredible act of love. It's hard to find a better example. The benefits conferred on the adopted child of safety and security and heritage I had a story about adoption that it, it was going to make some of you cry. But then I realized that John is not talking about adoption here in that way. What he has in mind is actually the new birth of a believer. He's talking about spiritual birth, being born again. And he gets so excited about this that this exclamation, this joy just pours forth from him. Are you excited about your new birth, Christian? John was an old man when he wrote this letter. He'd been a Christian for a long time, and yet he is still getting fired up about the new birth. Maybe you don't know what the new birth is. Let me explain it to you. Uh, when Jesus talked with Nicodemus, the Pharisee, in John chapter 3, the Gospel of John chapter 3, he told him that unless a person is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus was confused. He didn't understand. But he wanted to know how to enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's asking Jesus, what do you mean? And Jesus explains that he's not talking about a physical rebirth. He's talking about a spiritual birth. You were born physically from your mother, and now you must be born spiritually from your Father in heaven. To be born again, a person has to repent and believe in Jesus. Jesus, who was sent into the world in order that the world might be saved through him, it was God's immeasurable love that caused him to send his son, Jesus, that we could have this forgiveness. And it's the same love that energized John, and it, it should energize us. 
This is the relationship that you have with God if you have faith in Jesus. You are born of the Holy Spirit and you are God's child. We resemble him as children resemble their parents. And that's going to be a theme for us today, a major argument for John. As a parent, I've been struck by just how much my children look like me and take after me. They do what I do. Many years ago, I was uh, thrown from a car, and I promise this is connected. Many years ago, I was thrown from a car. And I, uh, obviously from that, have back issues that linger to this day. Uh, so we go to, our family goes to a chiropractor regularly. And we brought our kids in, and he took one look at Henry, my son, and he said, uh, <laughs> he said, that, that boy has uh, poor posture. Um, but it's not because of anything physiological. So he has taken on my posture, my bad posture, that is not naturally from me, but it happened to me at, through the course of my life. My son is watching me, and he resembles me because he sees what I do. Our children look like us. For those of you who aren't parents, we're all children. And uh, <laughs> as an adult child, maybe you've had the, the terrifying experience of realizing that for better or worse, you resemble your parents. <laughs> that realization of, oh no, <laughs> I'm becoming my father. <laughs> uh, but this is right. Uh, children should and do resemble their parents. And this new birth that John is talking about, it causes us to resemble our Father in heaven. And not only does it affect our relationship with him, it, it affects our relationships with other people as well. We can see that tension. The world doesn't know God. And because we are God's children, because we resemble him, the world doesn't know us doesn't understand us. Uh, later on in this chapter, John will say that the world hates Christians. And in his gospel, he tells us that the world hated Jesus, which is just proof that we don't belong to the world. We shouldn't be surprised. In fact, we should expect to be misunderstood. And we should respond with patience, and compassion on our friends and family members, our neighbors, our coworkers, the people around us who don't understand why we are the way that we are. The very fact that you are misunderstood and maybe even persecuted for resembling God should strengthen your faith because it's an indication that the world recognizes that you are living a different life. The reality, brothers and sisters, is that we are God's children now, right now. In verse 2, John contrasts what we know, that we are God's children, with what we don't know, which is what we will be when he returns. We'll have new bodies, 
But we don't know what they'll look like. Will they be shimmery? Uh, how old will they appear? Will I look like me or an idealized version of me? Like if my body had never borne the effects of sin? We don't really know. What we do know is that it will be more wonderful than the Christian life that we experience now. And we know that we will be like Christ. When he returns, and he's going to return, we will become like Jesus because we will see him as he is. We who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. The perfect relationship that existed in the Garden of Eden between God and man will be fully restored because there'll be no more sin to separate us. So we should look forward to being like Christ. And what does that mean to be like Christ? What does John say? Well, he says that to be like Christ is to be sinless. It's an ideal standard that we can't achieve in this life. We are beset on every side by temptation. We are not yet made perfect. But we are called to strive for it. Our hope in Christ, knowing what we will be, should drive and motivate us to pursue holiness over the desires of our flesh. Beloved, you will see Christ in all his glory and majesty and beauty with your own eyes. And not only will you see him, you will be like him. Does that truth create in you a desire to grow in purity and become like him now as much as we're able? We must welcome difficult sanctification and pruning because it's taking us closer towards that goal. If you've been nursing pet sins or coasting in your spiritual life, what are you waiting for? There's no reason to wait. As we look forward to that last day, with the Spirit's help, we must do what we can to prepare for it now. With ever-increasing expectation, anticipation, and assurance. And here's the crucial point that he makes in verse 3. Where does John say we put our hope as we embark on this goal? Is it in our own abilities to live righteously? Is it in my power? By no means. Our hope is not in our own strength to sanctify ourselves. Our hope is in Jesus. And this is not an uncertain hope. It's as sure as the sun's rising and setting. It's, as, it's sure because it's grounded on the promise of Christ. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. So what are the grounds for this hope? Christ came and accomplished his mission. John gives us two reasons in the rest of this section. We hope in Christ because he took away our sins and because he destroyed the works of the devil. So point two. Abide in Christ who has taken away your sins. Verses 4 through 6. 
Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one, keeps on, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. John is going to draw a contrast over the next six verses between the children of God and the children of the devil. Everyone who hopes in Christ purifies themselves as they strive to be like him. Now, the translators of the English Standard, English Standard Version have done some interpretive work for us when it says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning. If you have a different translation, it might just say, everyone who commits sin. And here's the sobering truth. Everybody sins. You and I have fallen short of the mark. And so has the person sitting next to you and the person in front of you and the person behind you. No one here is innocent. I know that I am not. <laughs> and if you're familiar with this first letter of John, back in chapter 1, verse 9, he writes that if anyone says they are without sin, they deceive themselves. We have a natural bent towards sin and we act on it. And that goes all the way back to our father Adam. We carry the stain of his original sin and have a natural inclination to sin. John gives us one of the clearest definitions for sin that can be found in scripture here. He says that sin is lawlessness. It is defiance against God's moral law. In the Old Testament, sin is defined in Deuteronomy 9.7 and Joshua 1.18 as rebellion against God. Sin doesn't always break man's law, but it always breaks God's law. It's not just a disregard for God's law. John tells us its very essence and nature is lawlessness. So when we sin, we're saying that God's law is insufficient, that it's incorrect. We see that clearly in our culture that is in the process of openly upending God's created order, tossing out biological distinctions between men and women, blurring language, be anything you want, do anything you want, sleep with anyone you want, marry anyone you want, anything goes. Sin is lawlessness. And while our culture delights in sin and boasts of it, we as Christians make a lot of excuses for our sins. We chalk it up to personality problems or we, we just minimize it. I snapped at my spouse or my child. Well, it's not my fault. I was just tired or just overstimulated in the moment. When we sin, beloved, when we make a practice of sinning, as John's talking about, we are just failing or missing the mark we're in active rebellion to God's revealed and known will. We know what the Father wills for his children. That's what this book is all about. It's a revelation of God's character and his will for us, for humanity. And it's incredibly important for us to recognize this because one of the first steps toward holy living is to, is to see the true nature and wickedness of sin. 
we have to have a real appreciation for the dangers and effects of it. And we see in verse five that John appeals to the knowledge of his audience. You know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. This is a glorious truth. And where else do we see this sort of language? Well, we see it in uh, the nativity story. Here's our connection to the nativity. Matthew's gospel tells us that an angel of the Lord appeared to a man named Joseph in a dream. The angel told him to marry his betrothed, Mary, and that the baby she was carrying was God's child. That they should name the child Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. We see the same language in John chapter 1, verse 29, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. This is Christ's mission. Why does John make this point? Why does he appeal to the knowledge of his audience? If we're supposed to become more like Christ, how can we actively practice sin when we know that the very work Christ came to do was to take sin away? It's counterproductive. It doesn't make any sense. It goes against what we know. We know better. John is emphasizing the person and work of Christ. What does he tell us about the person of Christ? Christ is sinless. He's always been sinless. There's never been sin in him, and there never will be. Even when he walked among us and faced temptation as we do, still he was without sin. Satan couldn't get him to sin. The people mocking him couldn't get him to sin. He never sinned in his anger or told a little white lie or cheated someone. He's righteous and he's eternally pure. And how did Jesus take away our sins? He took them on himself. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins on, in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Hebrews 9, 26. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. If the eternal nature of the Son of God is sinless, and if the reason he came was to remove sin, then no one who lives in him will keep on sinning. That's the logical conclusion that John is drawing in verse 6 there. The natural result of abiding in Christ is to not sin. Christ in his sinless person and saving work are fundamentally opposed to sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, it says. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And for some of us, this, this verse might feel like a dagger. If you're really struggling and seeing a lot of defeat in your battle against temptation and sin, some of you might hear this and be thinking, that's me. That's me. 
I keep on sinning. I must not really know him. No matter what I do, I just keep on running to sin. I want to be clear. He's talking about persistent, habitual patterns of sin. Okay, he's not talking about one-off sins. It's clear from the verb tenses that John is using here. If you are in a habitual pattern of sin, if you're sinning regularly, does that mean that you're not a Christian? Maybe. It's possible. But I don't think that John's intention is to cause us to doubt our salvation this morning. I think it's the opposite. I think that he is actually intending for us to be encouraged by these truths. He's reminding us that how we live matters and how we live should be informed by what we know. We know that Christ came to take away sins. We know that Christ is sinless. If someone abides in Christ, they will not continue to sin because Christ is sinless. So if you want to know how to break this pattern of sin in your life, John is telling us how to do that right here. Abide in Christ. If you are so enamored with Christ, if you are overwhelmed by his beauty and his glory, sin will lose its appeal. If you're clinging to this hope of what you will be, sin will lose its appeal. Nothing can hold a, a candle to the surpassing joy that we have in Christ. 17th century English theologian John Owen wrote in his book, The Mortification of Sin, set faith at work on Christ for the killing of thy sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. Live in this, and thou wilt die a conqueror. Yea, thou wilt, through good providence of God, live to see thy lust dead at thy feet. So how do we abide in Christ? We read the scriptures. We pray to him. We follow his commandments to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves. We memorize scripture. We exercise the fruit of the Spirit. We encourage one another. We have a living and active relationship with him. When we are tempted to sin, we go to him. Jesus, I am tempted. I am tempted to grumbling and complaining. Help me to see your goodness in my circumstances. Jesus, I am tempted to lust. Help me to see that your eternal glory surpasses all worldly pleasures. Some of us need to actually carve out undistracted time to invest in this relationship. That might be the most discouraging thing that I've said this morning because for some of you, undistracted time is, is like a myth. It doesn't exist. Um, it's a distant memory <laughs> because your kids won't leave you alone. Spouses, help your spouses. Help your spouse. Husbands, love your wives by freeing them up. Give them regular time to spend with the Lord. Wives, serve your husbands 
Give them regular space to commune with the Lord. Singles, you have no excuse. You have all the time in the world. No, use, use this time wisely. Strengthen your relationship with the Lord so that when storms come, you're prepared. When your life gets crazy busy, you have truth to cling to. You have scripture ready to remind you of who Christ is, what he's done. That he can speak to you through the scripture that you've memorized. And for some of us, this means that we actually need to simplify our lives. We need to do less for a season. Less commitments, less entertainment, so that we can get into regular habits. I'm preaching to myself. (laughs) Don't read so many things. Maybe even read less scripture. And instead, spend more time meditating on the things that you've read, applying those things, talking to the Lord about what you've read. Listen to less sermons and spend more time meditating on the ones that you do, applying the ones that you do. We live in an information age. We have access to so much information, but having so much information does not equate to having a stronger relationship with the Lord, okay? It can't replace, it can't substitute the actual work of processing, applying conversing with the Lord. We've got to invest in this relationship like any other relationship if we want it to be healthy. So point number two is abide in Christ who has taken away your sins. Don't work against him. Don't add to his work. Become what you are. Live as a child of God whose sins have been taken away. Point number three, become what you are. It's verses seven through 10. Little children, and let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning, because he's been born of God. But this, by this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So John now addresses us with a pastoral word. He says, don't be deceived by those who say that you can be righteous without actually practicing righteousness. We have to be on our guard about this. This is the message that the world is peddling. But it's not the truth. It's a terrible lie. You cannot be righteous without bothering to live righteously. False teachers in John's day were telling people that it didn't matter how you lived as long as you had the right knowledge. And false teachers are still teaching the same lies today. John's whole point in this section is it matters how you live. This deception is John's transition to the second reason that Jesus came, to destroy the works of the devil. 
This section is going to follow the same pattern as the previous one. He's going to reference the seriousness of sin. He's going to emphasize the mission of Christ on earth. And then he's going to make a conclusion about holiness. But the focus here is shifted from the nature of sin to the origin of sin. The nature of sin is lawlessness. The origin of sin is the devil. In the Gospel of John, chapter 8, Jesus is having a back and forth uh, teaching time with some Jews who were trying to gather evidence against him in order to kill him. And in this conversation, he tells, he tells us who the devil is. He says to them in verse 44 of chapter 8, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Who is the devil? He's not an imp with a pitchfork. Scripture tells us that he was an angel who did not hold to the truth, who became proud and sought to overthrow God. So he was cast down to the earth. He's by nature the evil one. That's what Jesus called him. That's what John calls him six times in this letter. He's been sinning from the beginning since the Garden of Eden and the fall of Adam and Eve. And he continues to tempt people to sin. He is a liar and the father of lies. There's no truth in him. And Jesus came to destroy his works. Not to neutralize them, not to alleviate them, not to limit them. Jesus wants to destroy the works of the devil. His work is everything that spoils the perfect creation of God. And how has Christ destroyed his work? He overcame the devil completely by his life, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. He's talking about Jesus. So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Beloved, the power of death is waning. Paul claims that death will be swallowed up in victory at Christ's return. He says in Romans 16 that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And it's because of this promise that John can say in uh, 1 John 2, 13 and 14, I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly when this will happen, but victory is certain. Satan will be totally defeated. And in the meantime, Jesus has destroyed the strongholds of Satan over you. You do not need to fear Satan if you're a believer. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck you from Christ's hand. Satan's lies are not effective on us anymore. Our minds have been renewed. He is not our Father. God is our Father. We have no fear of death. When we die, 
our eternal stay in heaven begins. We get to check into our room at our Father's house that Christ has prepared for us. We will never be closer to hell than we are right now. And John makes this application to our lives. He says in verse 9 that no one born of God keeps on sinning. In fact, they can't. There have been people who argue that John is saying in verse 9 that Christians can become perfect. Is John saying that Christians cannot sin ever? The answer is no. We've already seen in chapter 1 that John says that if anyone denies that there's sin, they're a liar. But John is arguing that a Christian who lives in Christ, who abides in Christ, is not able to sin habitually. We cannot go on sinning. We are, we're going to grow in holiness. We're going to grow in purity. We're not slaves to sin anymore. There's a quote from the father of the Reformation, Martin Luther, that uh, may be more impactful for the men, but I think the ladies, I think you'll understand. You'll get the idea. He says, the original sin in man is like his beard, which though shaved off today, so that a man is very smooth around his mouth, yet grows again by tomorrow morning. As long as a man lives, such growth of the hair and the beard does not stop. But when the shovel beats the ground on his grave, it stops. Just so, original sin remains in us and bestirs itself as long as we live, but we must resist it and always cut off this hair. Here's what this means. The new birth means that you have acquired a new nature. It's a deep, radical, inward transformation. Yet original sin remains. The punishment for sin is taken by Christ, but that old desire to sin is still present. This new spiritual nature exerts internal pressure towards holiness. It's this influence that gives John the confidence to assert that a Christian will not go on sinning. He can't go on sinning. Jesus came to remove the barriers keeping us from a right relationship with God. Sin separated us from him. Jesus takes it away and gives us his righteousness. The devil attacks us with lies. Jesus has destroyed the works of the devil. His lies are ineffective on us now. Death has no power over us. The only power that it has is the power that we give it. We have God's seed, it says. We have the Holy Spirit who always provides a way out of temptation for us. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it, to endure that temptation. And I need you guys, I need everyone to hear me this morning. Sin is never 
necessary. Christian, it is not necessary for you to sin ever. There is never a situation where we don't have the tools to endure temptation. God has equipped us with the care of the Holy Spirit so that we can always choose holiness and purity over sin. This is a message of empowerment. Do you feel empowered by Christ, by what he has done for you? This is the joy of being a child of God. This is what's getting John worked up. Do you, do you understand that a little bit better now? Can we appreciate this status a little more this morning? Do you have a hope for victory now? Because that's the reason that Christ came. I've been addressing Christians this morning. If you're visiting with us and you'd not call yourself a Christian, I'm glad that you're here. This work that Christ has done, these benefits that I've described, this freedom from guilt and ability to pursue holiness can be yours. The response to sin is the same for everybody. How do we respond to our sin? What do we do? 1 John 1 tells us our response to, sh to sin should be confession. Acknowledging our sins to the Lord. To the people whom we have sinned against. Seeking forgiveness. And what happens when we confess our sins to the Lord? What does John say? He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you confess your sins to the Lord, if you seek forgiveness from the Lord, you will have it. And you can have it this morning. You can become a child of God right now. Christian, we don't go on sinning. We have to fight. And here's the point. If you take nothing else from this sermon this morning, God has graciously given you everything you need to win the battle against temptation and sin. We know that we can grow in holiness because we have already seen what we will become. Some of us just have a failure of confidence. You've been stumbling for so long that you've just accepted that this is the way it is. No. That is a lie. We don't settle. It's not going to be easy. In fact, it's, it's going to be really hard. And it's probably going to hurt. But Christ gives us everything we need to press on toward holy living. We honor the work that he's done by putting off the old man and walking in the new birth. Become what you are. A righteous man falls seven times and rises again. 
but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. We pick ourselves up. We do what we have to to make things right, and we continue the race until the finish. And here's the, the amazing news. You will complete the race, and you will be like Christ. And here's even better news. We love Jesus because he first loved us. We didn't choose him. He chose us. And he chose us to walk out our faith in obedience to him. He didn't make a mistake. He doesn't make mistakes. Don't walk away from this message hearing from me. I think, oh, Michael just told me to do it. He said, just go... Just go live righteously. Just do it. Apart from Christ, we can't do anything. He will provide the grace and the strength that you need. All throughout this argument, John is tying everything back to Christ, who Christ was, what Christ has done. It's not our own strength that we can do this. So why do we have hope? We know the finished product is that we'll be like Christ. How can we grow in purity? By abiding in Christ. How is it possible for us to not go on sinning? Because Christ has taken away the power of sin and death, and God's seed abides in you. So John concludes this section with a test. This is how you know who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. The children of God act like it by loving God and loving their brothers. If you're like me, I need uh, external motivation when I'm trying to accomplish a goal uh, to help me get going. And a few years ago, I was trying to get into distance running. So over the course of several weeks, I rented uh, every documentary I could find from the library about running. Uh, about marathon running, about uh, ultra marathon running. It's like 50 to 150 miles in one race. One guy ran from the East Coast all the way to the West Coast. Uh, and then another guy tried to beat that guy's time. Uh, people, people really do these things, and it's crazy. <laughs> but something that I saw in each of these documentaries as, as people embark on something that seems so monumental and unattainable, is that they all set out to accomplish these tasks believing that they will complete them. Not one of them started out with doubt. John is showing us what's possible for us as God's children. We don't set out with doubt on whether it will be accomplished or not. We set out with confidence. We will be like Christ and that process has already started. And he challenges us to run the race with that goal in mind, knowing that we will complete it. He wants us to have unshakable confidence because our hope rests in what Christ has already done. It's possible because Christ was born a baby in Bethlehem. God became a man. He accomplished the work that he set out to do by living a sinful life, dying a death, a sinless life, excuse me, because he was without sin. 
dying a death he didn't deserve so that sinners like you and me could be saved. He removed our sin as far from us as the east is from the west so that we could have relationship with God. He destroyed the work of the devil so that we could pursue righteousness in this life unhindered by the fear of death. So become what you are. Don't wait until the new year to start this resolution. Abide in him and he will abide in you. Be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. As we think about these reminders that we have of what Christ has done, Jesus gave us a tangible reminder of the work that he accomplished in the Lord's Supper. It's a reminder that in Christ we've been set free from the power of sin and death. His body is represented by the bread. It was broken to pay the heavy penalty for our sin. His blood represented by the juice that we're about to drink was shed for our forgiveness. When we partake of this meal together, we're not just following some tradition. Like John, writing for our encouragement, Jesus has given this meal for our encouragement to spur us on as we run this race, to motivate us to press on toward the goal, that future hope that we have when Christ returns and makes all things new those perfect bodies that we look forward to, the sinless world that we look forward to. This is a family meal. If you're with us this morning and you're not a Christian, if you've not been baptized, identifying with Christ by going under the waters of death and being raised up to new life with him, if you're living in a pattern of sin, of unrepentant sin, then this meal is not for you. Seek the Lord in prayer during this time. Let this be the day of salvation for you. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And if you are taking part in this meal, we're going to release row by row and come down the center aisle, receive the elements, the bread and the cup, and take them back to your seat. Pastor Drew is going to lead us in eating and drinking this meal together. Will you pray with me?